Have you faced opposition for following Christ? William Tyndale was a scholar in England in the early 1500s. His life's ambition was to translate the Bible from its original languages into English. At that time, if you wanted to read the Bible, you had to know Latin. Very few people knew Latin. 1408, a law had been passed forbidding reading, writing, selling, or even owning any part of the Bible in English. So with translating the Bible as his life's mission, Tyndale was bound to face opposition. He was forced to flee England for the European continent, 1524. He would never see his homeland again. One biographer characterized the rest of Tyndale's life as a hide-and-seek existence, dodging inquisitors and spies. He never married. He translated the Bible on the run. He insisted that we are saved not by faith together with works, but by faith alone. Quote, for faith bringeth pardon and forgiveness freely purchased by Christ's blood. And because he held biblical beliefs like this, uh, a counselor to the king named Thomas More wrote hundreds of thousands of words denouncing Tyndale. We can only be grateful that Twitter hadn't yet been invented. Moore was a professing Christian, but he called Tyndale the captain of our English heretics and a hellhound in the kennel of the devil. Slander, threats, mocking, opposition. That's what Tyndale experienced. And here's a question for us. Is opposition something we really only read about in the history books or maybe hear about from, from faraway countries? Is opposition something we should expect? Should we expect it even from those who claim the name of Christ? Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can find it on page 996 of the Pew Bibles, that are provided. I invite you to grab one, open it up with us. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is near the end of his life. He's writing from a Roman prison cell to his young protege, Timothy, a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Isaac led us through chapters 1 and 2 recently. There, Paul told Timothy to first guard the good deposit of the message of Christ, and then he told him to keep the gospel the main thing in the church. So will all this be easy for Timothy? Will it be easy for us? Listen as I read 2 Timothy 3. We'll start with verses 1 to 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jonvers opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Here's a question this chapter helps us answer. How should we endure persecution for following Christ? How should we endure persecution and opposition for following Christ? Our chapter gives us three answers, three points this morning. First, number one, reject false teachers. In order to endure opposition for following Christ, reject false teachers. That's what we see here in verses 1 to 9. Paul tells Timothy in verse 1, times of difficulty are going to come in the last days. So when are the last days? According to the New Testament, the last days are right now. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. 1 John 2, children, it is the last hour. When Christ came, he inaugurated the final stage of history. So everything between his first coming and his final return, which we're somewhere in right now, is called the last days. And Paul doesn't leave us with any confusion about what these last days will be like. He says they're going to be difficult, hard. In fact, that's the first command in this passage, simply understand this, know it, Uh, don't be surprised by it. How kind of God to tell us in advance that the Christian life isn't a tropical cruise. It's an uphill marathon. Why will these days be so difficult? We see the answer in verse 2, for people will be. And then here Paul gives this list of 19 unsavory, sinful traits of people who will make life difficult for those who truly follow Christ. We see in verse 8 that these people oppose the truth. We see in verse 6 that they are leading others astray. So this is primarily a description of false teachers. And we see the portrait of them in verses 2 to 5. Charles led us in thinking about some of these things even in the prayer of confession. This is not a pretty portrait. It all begins with their hearts, with what they love. Did you notice that? How love is at both the beginning and end of this list. It begins with lovers of self, lovers of money. Uh, You see in the middle there in verse 3, not loving good. Then finally all the way down to lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Jesus taught that out of the heart, The mouth speaks. Misdirected love blazed inside the hearts of these men like lava inside a volcano 
which then erupted with words and deeds that would burn others. As lovers of self, they have an inaccurate and inflated self-perception, proud, arrogant, swollen with conceit. And so in many ways, their lives were the opposite of Christ-like virtue, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, without self-control. We're getting this snapshot of someone who wreaks havoc wherever he goes, unappeasable. That means never at peace with others. Brutal was a word that typically described wild animals and people who act like them, reckless, slanderous, treacherous, uh, abusive. The Greek word there is specifically about one's speech, talking about speech that breaks others down, that's full of scoffing. Now, all these qualities are quite negative, yet we still have got to be alert because of verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, yet denying its power. So these teachers looked religious. Uh, The opposition Timothy's facing wasn't coming from outside the church. It's rising up from within. But Paul had predicted this. In Acts 20, the last time he was in Ephesus, Paul said, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He said these wolves would be from among your own selves. These guys talked the talk. They wore the right clothes. They used the right theological buzzwords. They attended church. They probably followed a strict code of behavior. They likely even quoted the scriptures. And yet behind this shiny veneer, their fruit was rancid. It was rotten to the core. Imagine a spy infiltrating an elite military unit like the Navy SEALs. He wears the uniform, he learns all the code words, he goes along with the trainings, but ultimately he subverts the mission of the unit because he doesn't know or submit to the commanding officer. That's a problem with these guys. They put on a counterfeit facade of godliness, but they deny its power. They don't know or submit to Christ. When Paul talks about power, he means the power of God's Holy Spirit in us, which we only receive by trusting the good news of Christ. These guys haven't done that. Members of CHBC, there's a reason why, in accordance with Scripture, we expect the whole congregation to vote on who becomes an elder of this church. It's because the congregation as a whole is responsible to ensure anyone we recognize as an overseer doesn't fit the profile of these verses. I hope that we take that stewardship seriously. And yet, though these verses are primarily about teachers, they contain a warning for all of us because all of us teach in various ways through our words, through our prayers, through our lifestyle, our example, Elsewhere, Paul tells all Christians to examine yourselves, to see if you are in the faith. So a list like this gives us that opportunity for some solemn self-examination. Look over these verses. Do any of these words consistently describe you? Do many of them describe you? Now, brothers and sisters, being a Christian doesn't mean a life of perfection. 
It means a life of repentance. Those who trust in Christ may from time to time see these sins in ourselves, but we take God's side against these sins. When we recognize them in us, we mourn them with a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. Repentance means turning away from sin by God's power that is in us. You know who many of these words would have described at one point in time? Paul himself, the author of this letter. He says in 1 Timothy, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. If you look at this list and you realize that many of these traits consistently and regularly describe you, and you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, let me plead with you today to repent of your sin. Flee from living for yourself. Flee from the harm that you're doing to others by engaging in these things and sprint to the one who never committed any of these sins so that he would lay his life down as a sacrifice for sinners. However, we need to understand that not all will come to their senses and turn to Christ. So if a false teacher or a false believer arises in our midst and will not repent of these sorts of things, what are we to do? Paul's very clear. Look at the end of verse 5. Avoid such people. In other words, don't recognize them as members of your fellowship. They've proven by their deeds that their profession of faith is bankrupt. This phrase is a summary of what's been called corrective church discipline. This idea doesn't mean that you would shun the person or never speak to them. Paul's not saying if you see them on the sidewalk, you're supposed to cross to the other side of the street. He's saying stay away from their teaching and don't regard them as belonging to the faith. We know this is what Paul means because he uses similar language elsewhere in his letters. Romans 16, 17, he says, Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Jesus teaches the same thing in Matthew 18. As we see in verse 8, we are to conclude that such people are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. It's not that we can know if someone is saved or not. Only God knows that. It's that we say, in love, we can no longer affirm your claim to represent Jesus. In love, we, we can no longer share the Lord's Supper with you. We're concerned for you. We relate to such a person in love, and we call them to repent just as we would with any other non-Christian friend. This past week, a couple of cars were broken into here in the church parking lot. Life in D.C. It is a fallen world. On Wednesday night, a police officer parked a big old police SUV in the parking lot and kept the headlights on. Do you think any cars were broken into on Wednesday night? No, because someone was on guard. And church family, that's a picture of our job. We are to shine the light of God's truth and so protect one another from false teachers who would break in to our fellowship. Why do we do this? Because we see in verse 6 that false believers and especially false teachers 
harm others. Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. So it seems that in Ephesus, these false teachers were going house to house and spreading their twisted doctrine in sort of unofficial private meetings. And they took advantage of some who were likely even part of the church. Weak women. Now, what does Paul mean by this? Here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that women are in any way spiritually or morally inferior to men. Men and women are both made in the image of God in Genesis 1. Paul insists in Galatians 3 that women and men are equal heirs of salvation in Christ. And even in chapter 1 of this very letter, Paul celebrates the faith of women like Lois and Eunice who taught Timothy about Jesus. No, here Paul is referring to women in Ephesus who were in a position of weakness because of their sin. You see those phrases, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. These phrases describe these particular women. That's in the, in the Greek grammar, that's who these phrases are talking about. You can translate it by inserting the phrase, weak women who are burdened with sins and, and so on. And so this verse provides us with a warning that we need to hear for both women and men alike. Sin blinds you. If these women were stuck in sin, maybe in some way the teaching, the false teaching that was being offered to them providing some sort of enticing way out. And because their sin had blinded them, they couldn't see that this way led to death. If you indulge ungodly passions, It's like taking a baseball bat to your discernment radar. You're numbing your ability to sift truth from error. In Ephesus, women were being led astray, but men, it seems, were leading them astray. So both women and men need help. We need rescue. We must be clear about this. These false teachers bore responsibility before God for leading women astray. That is their sin. That is their guilt. They will have to answer to God for that. At the same time, this verse also gives us a reminder that if we live in foolish ways, we can become more vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Sin can put you in the path of danger. So be on guard. Of course, there are so many tragic occasions where people are sinned against and there's nothing they could have ever done to prevent it. I'm not talking about situations like that. In situations like that, God will be just. He will make every wrong right for those who have been wronged and sinned. But sometimes there are other scenarios where we must be on guard that our sins and passions don't lead us into a place where we're more likely to be taken advantage of by others. Women and men are both susceptible to false teaching, but since these false teachers were targeting women especially, I just want to take an opportunity to say a word to my sisters here in the congregation. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in God's truth. Flee from sin. Keep your guard up for false teaching. 
My prayer for you all, as it is for my brothers as well, is that all of us would cultivate a clear conscience so that we can reject what is false and embrace what is true. If you now realize that at one time in your life, your sin made you susceptible to false teaching, oh, remember Christ's mercy. He shed his blood to redeem us from all our folly and wickedness. He has made you new. Look at that example of the strong faith of women like Lois and Eunice and take comfort from that. And if you have ever been wronged or led astray, trust that God will bring justice on evildoers. Put your hope in him. CHBC, I'm grateful that we are a church that loves to learn. This is a strange church. This is a church where pastors hand out free books all the time. Uh, where we have multiple classes offered on Sunday mornings where literally hundreds of you get together during the week to study the Bible and study other good books. That's all great, but notice that some of the women in Ephesus were always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And when Paul talks about the truth, he means the good news of Jesus Christ. Both women and men can be tempted by this. So brothers and sisters, it's possible to enjoy accumulating facts, ideas, even Bible verses and theology in your head, all the while not knowing and trusting Jesus in your heart. Learn, but let what you learn drive you to faith and repentance in Christ, not drive you to pride for the things that you've come to know. Uh, The main impact that a good sermon should have on your life isn't to make you smarter. It's to make you holier. It's to deepen your communion with Jesus. You see, what we listen to matters. False teaching won't lead any of us to heaven. False teachers are on the path to destruction. Case in point, Janus and Jambres. Verse 8, various Jewish writings record that these are the names of the Egyptian sorcerers who tried to imitate the miracles of Moses and Aaron in Exodus. They tried, they failed. What happened to the Egyptian army? That's right, God buried them underneath the waters of the Red Sea. So false teachers didn't prevail in Egypt, and they wouldn't prevail in Ephesus, and they won't prevail against us. Verse 9, they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all. Jesus said, you know a tree by its fruit. Eventually, the traitors are exposed. The game's up, the show's over, and the truth will win. That may and it should happen now through church discipline, but it will certainly and finally happen on the last day when God renders his judgment and he makes all things plain. And yet, as we wait for that day, uh, rejecting false teachers can be daunting. This requires resolve. It requires wisdom. Where can we look for a pattern of how to endure? That leads us to our second point. Number two, replicate godly examples. In order to endure opposition for following Christ, replicate godly examples. We're going to see this in verses 10 to 13. Listen as I read. You, however, 
have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. When I took piano lessons as a kid, my hands would often go flat, and that's not good. And my piano teacher would say, no, 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 you have to imagine a little bubble under your hands and don't pop the bubble. Or there's a little orange under your hands. Don't squeeze out any orange juice. I hope I'm not bringing back many traumatic memories for other <laughs> piano students. What would help most, though, is if we would play a piece that I knew by heart so that while we played, I wouldn't be looking at the notes. I wouldn't be looking at my fingers. I would instead be looking at her hands as she played alongside me. Well, that's what Paul tells Timothy to do here. You've followed my example, keep following it. Paul knows a thing or two about persecution. Uh, these cities he mentions in verse 11 are all in modern day Turkey. We heard from part of Acts 14 earlier, as Ashley read to us, you can read the whole chapter later, and you'll see that at Antioch, he was driven out of the city. That actually happens in 13, so start in chapter 13. Then chapter 14, Iconium, some made a plan to stone Paul, and he fled. And then as we just heard, at Lystra, Paul really was stoned. But God rescued him. He preserved his life. So this was Paul's pattern. Proclamation, then persecution. It seems to be the Christian way. So notice how Paul sets up his character of endurance as a contrast from the false teachers. Right? They got a real long list of sins up there in verses 2 to 5. Well, now here we get a great list of Paul's godly life. Verse 10, teaching, that means his doctrine, his conduct, his aim in life, his faith and patience and love and steadfastness. These are the qualities you look for in an elder. These are the traits that you seek when you're looking for someone to disciple you and teach you about the faith. When you're faced with persecution, you got to know mature Christians who can model perseverance. Paul's not saying he's perfect. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So I wonder, if, if someone followed you around for a whole year and saw everything you did and said, how would they describe your teaching, the things that you say and declare? How would they describe your conduct? Would they see faith and patience in you? Pray and ask God to bring one person into your life that you could be an example for. And I praise God for the multitude of godly examples we have here among us to replicate in our church body. If you haven't gotten to know many folks here at the church, there is a treat in store for you in just making relationships. Uh, we should look up to the examples of saints who are older than us, who have weathered more opposition in their lives. But I would also say don't neglect other believers who are your age or who are younger than you. I've been greatly helped. I've learned much from Nick Kim's example of evangelism and from Emily Stewart's example of prayer 
and Brandon Robinson's example of perseverance. We need godly examples like this because, as Paul says in verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the normal pattern for those who are united to Christ. As Jesus said in John 15, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, this persecution can take many forms. If you look at the book of 1 Peter, it's all about suffering persecution. It seems the believers that Peter's writing to there, they weren't really being put to death or chased out of their homes. They were facing insults. They were being mocked and made fun of for following Christ. So understand this. Paul's not saying that you're not a true Christian until you've been persecuted. He's simply saying that true Christians normally will be persecuted at some point. You don't have to chase it. You don't have to seek it. In some way, persecution will find you, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's with your family or in your neighborhood, whether that's on social media. He says in verse 13 that evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. So wickedness is continuing to spiral around us That's the source of our persecution. He says that deceived people deceive people. And as that's happening, they continue to persecute God's children. And I'm well aware that many in our congregation have experienced this. Some have been looked over for promotions because of their faith. Some have been ostracized by family members. Some have been the subject of crude jokes or gossip. Of course, we know other Christians around the world who have faced threats of arrest, who have faced attempted violence against them, many other examples we could give. And though these brothers and sisters who we know and love have received ridicule and mocking in the kingdom of this world, friends, there is another kingdom coming. Matthew 5, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, says Jesus, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So Christian, remember two truths about persecutions. Number one, you will face them. Number two, you will outlast them. For the last year and a half or so, one of my closest family members has stopped speaking to me. And the reason he gave is that it's too painful for him to relate to me since I believe what the Bible teaches about certain controversial topics. He said that despite years of affection and memories and shared experiences, we can't have a relationship if I think that Scripture is true. And brothers and sisters, I must admit, this has really shaken me. There have been long nights as I wrestle with this, and I've thought to myself, if this is what it means to follow Christ, is it worth it? God has been faithful. I can testify that by his grace, he's reminded me of Paul's example, of the example of so many of you, Christ's own example supremely. Of course, that doesn't make persecution easy. But persecution has a way of keeping us 
from investing too much of our hope in this world. What was it we just sang earlier? Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Pray for me in that. Pray for one another when you know that you're facing opposition and persecution in that, that we would know and believe that if all we have is Christ, we have more than enough. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder how it strikes you that we Christians have signed up for a faith that promises persecution and opposition. Have you thought about this? You know, real Christianity doesn't promise health and wealth in this life. It promises very clearly right here and all throughout Scripture that we're going to suffer like Christ. How do we explain this? Well, Jesus is like no other religious founder. He didn't come primarily to set up a new ethical teaching, a new social movement, an ethical system. He came to die. That's what makes Christianity just totally unique. Because God is good, it would be good for God to judge all of us who have strayed from God's ways. All of us have rebelled against God. That list in verses 2 to 5, when we're honest, we know that we've checked many of those boxes. None of us has attained or can attain to God's perfect moral standard. And that's why Jesus, the Son of God, came in love. He came to lay his life down as a sacrifice on the cross in the place of people like us, in the place of persecutors like us who mocked and insulted him. Out of love, he offered his life and then he rose again from the grave to give new life, a life that we could never earn. So what this means is that if you hear this and understand it and believe it, you should put your trust and faith in Christ today. Repent of your sins and follow Jesus. But to follow Jesus, you will have to take up your cross. That's what we've all done. You're signing up for a life of suffering just as he suffered. He's our ultimate example. But because he suffered God's wrath on the cross, all who turn to him are set free from eternal suffering. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we follow him, even though it means suffering and opposition in this life, because he gave himself for us. We love him because he loved us first. And how kind of him to give us an example of facing opposition, not only in his own life, but many other examples seated in the pews all around us. Brothers and sisters, replicate godly examples to help you endure. But that can be hard to do when opposition is bearing down on us. We can feel unsettled, like the floor of our faith is shaking beneath us. What is our foundation? That leads us to our third point. Number three, remain rooted in Scripture. In order to endure opposition for following Christ, remain rooted in Scripture. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do in verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith 
in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when opposition shakes your confidence, remain rooted in Scripture. Verse 14, Paul says, Continue what you've learned and firmly believed. Verse 15, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. And by that phrase, in the the term Scripture in verse 16, Paul is at least referring to the Old Testament, which was regarded by Jews and by the followers of Christ as the exact written revelation of God's Word. Now, of course, at this time, this is about the mid-60s A.D., some of the apostles and their close associates were writing the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Paul himself had been writing letters to the churches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for several years. In his first letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul refers to a saying of Jesus recorded in the book of Luke as Scripture. And in the book of 2 Peter 3.16, Peter talks about Paul's letters as Scripture. They were regarded by Scripture at that day. So we don't know exactly which New Testament letters or documents Timothy had, but we know that the early church received the books of the New Testament as inspired, authoritative revelation from God the moment that they got them. And Paul here tells Timothy to continue in the scriptural truth you've learned. It is to be your foundation. If you've got questions about this, There should be a book on the bookstall, a little white hardback book called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. If you want to read that book, I or someone else from the church will be glad to meet up with you after you read it and talk about any questions you might have. Recently, my family and I spent a night at Great Wolf Lodge. It's a family hotel, and they were genius enough to put a water park inside the hotel. Now, this water park has a fake wave that you can ride on on a piece of foam, a a boogie board. True confessions, I love boogie boarding, all right? (laughs) I I know it's a thing that kids do, but I I have like a a grown-up sized one. I grew up near near, near a beach. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable on real waves. I don't get to do it a lot. So when I saw this fake wave, I said, I gotta do this. So I get in line next to all the like nine and 10 year olds. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm about to teach these kids how it's really done. School is in session. Here we go. And it's not a real wave. You understand when you're riding the thing, the water comes from behind you and you have this great time and going toward the beach. On this fake wave, it was sort of the opposite. The the water comes up at you and you're supposed to sort of like stabilize yourself on it. Well, the lifeguard hands me this little foam thing and I'm like, here we go. And I jump in, and instantly my face is pummeled with water. I have no clue what to do. I'm flying around like a madman. I'm totally off kilter. I'm falling off the thing. And finally, I just have to, like, roll off of it. (laughs) I hang my head in shame in front of all the kids and just give the foam boogie board back to the lifeguard. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, there are waves of opposition coming for us that are far more terrifying than what I experienced 
on that day. And when these waves of opposition press against us, we need something sturdier than a piece of foam. We need a foundation, something that is solid and sturdy, that will never be moved or shaken, that we can sink our roots into. And that foundation is the Word of God. I love how Paul reminds Timothy of those he learned the Scriptures from. He's basically saying, Timothy, when you're discouraged by false teachers, think about your mom and grandma. The Bible hasn't let them down. Now, of course, Scripture is true, regardless of whether other people recognize it as true or not. We should receive it as true, even if no one else we know does. But when people make fun of us for loving Jesus, when people mock us or oppose us for following God's commands, it can be comforting. It can provide helpful confirmation when we look at other pilgrims who are holding fast to the map of Scripture and we see, oh yeah, they're still on the straight and narrow path. God's Word hasn't let them down. Let's follow them. Who do you see here at CHBC following the Scripture that you can take encouragement from? Kids who are here, if you're regularly learning about the Bible from your parents, from other grown-ups here in the church, I just hope you recognize how special that is. Not every child around the world gets to learn God's Word from a young age. I pray that you would get to know Scripture and believe it. If you're a parent or a grandparent (coughs) and you've been trying imperfectly to sow the seed of God's Word in your kids or grandkids, your efforts bring glory to God. It may be years or decades before these children believe the Word. But he says in verse 15, the Scriptures make us wise for salvation. He's telling Timothy, this is the message you heard that saved you, so keep holding on to it. What sorts of persecutions will children who are upstairs in Praise Factory right now face in 40 to 60 years? I don't know. And in 40 to 60 years, those of you who are so amazing and kind as to serve in Praise Factory and help in children's ministry, you may not be around anymore, but the word that you've taught them will be. You are equipping them now to endure what may be in store. Thank you for your service. Because of what Scripture is, we can have confidence in what Scripture does. That's what Paul says when he tells Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It is His self-revelation to us. A key verse about this that you want to get to know, 2 Peter 1.20. 2 Peter 1.20. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God is a God of truth. He never changes. He does not and will not lie. Therefore, every single word God inspired for the various human authors of Scripture to write, is trustworthy, without error. That was Jesus' view of the Scriptures. He said in John 10, the Scripture cannot be broken. He said in John 17, your word is truth. As followers of Jesus, we view the Scripture as he did. The focus here in our passage is because Scripture is the very word of God, 
it unleashes the power of God for the people of God. Timothy, are your people facing fierce opponents? You have all you need to defend them. Verse 17, Scripture makes the man of God complete, equipped for every good work. It is profitable for all the work God has called you to do. That phrase, man of God, echoes a common Old Testament phrase for God's messenger, God's agent. So Paul here is first and foremost talking about Timothy. Uh, Today, those whose role most closely matches Timothy's are local church pastors or elders. And he's telling us as ministers that if you have Scripture, you have all that you need to do God's work. We call this the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture makes you complete, meaning that you're fully furnished with what you need to serve God's people. But of course, this isn't just true of pastors. This is for all of us. All believers are called to teach one another. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So I would ask, have you ever felt inadequate to help another believer who's struggling or who's got a question for you? Well, that's okay because we are powerless on our own. And yet with scripture in our hands, every single believer has a double-edged sword that is living and active, that won't return void. So you are fully armed for every task Christ calls you to. You're armed to teach the truth to one another. You're armed for reproof, to call someone back from the danger of sin. You're armed for correction, to lovingly show someone the right path. You're armed for training in righteousness. So, brothers and sisters, know Scripture. Sink your roots in deep. Memorize it and let it work on your own heart. And then unleash it. Let it do its work among others. Quote it in texts or emails. Read it with others at the kitchen table or the coffee shop or the office break room. One of the reasons we have Scripture read from the Old and New Testaments, every Lord's Day morning together here, is that we are confident that Scripture transforms us. It's what God uses to conform us to the image of Christ. And brothers and sisters, pray for your pastors. Ministry can often make us feel inadequate. We are caring for sheep in complicated situations, so pray that Scripture would course deeply through our veins and that we would shepherd all of you with our Bibles open. God's word is our firm foundation. His every promise will prevail, even amidst opposition. That was Paul's hope in prison as he called Timothy to reject false teachers, to replicate godly examples, and to remain rooted in Scripture. And it was William Tyndale's hope as well, as he endured his own prison cell in the year 1536. By then, Tyndale had translated the New Testament and much of the Old, but a man named Harry Phillips pretended to be his friend. Phillips was paid a large sum of money to betray Tyndale, turning him over to the authorities in Belgium on charges of heresy. Tyndale was later executed. His last words before death were, Lord, 
open the king of England's eyes. An appropriate prayer from one whose own eyes had been opened to the truth of Scripture that made him wise for salvation, who had spent his life trying to get Scripture translated so that others whose eyes God would open would see the truth. Could he have known that he would be one of the primary instruments God would use to bring that very same Scripture to us? I don't know what sorts of fiery trials God has in store for us as a congregation. I don't know what deep waters he's going to call us to endure. Yet even if the rivers of woe and opposition and persecution swirl around us, we can be firmly rooted on the promises of God that will prevail. We follow, after all, in the steps of a Savior who himself was betrayed for a large sum of money by someone who claimed to be his friend. We worship a Savior who was mocked and insulted by those who days earlier had cried Hosanna to his name. And we rely on a Savior who was nailed to a cross to transform us from his persecutors into his forgiven friends. And as we remain rooted in his promises, we know this to be true, that the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will not, no, will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, Christ will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you that you are the God who has called us and loved us and will keep us to the end. Lord, we are inadequate and insufficient on our own, yet you have been so kind to equip us for whatever battles you would call us to face. Lord, we thank you that we can rely on you as our great captain and king. We praise you that you will prevail in the end that all of your promises will prove true, that you will fulfill your faithfulness to us. Receive our praise and honor as we simply seek to rely on you. Help us as a church to remain rooted in you and in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.